I'll say I'm a little bit impressed here today. You know, I, I thought I'd be preaching to my wife and the praise team. <laughs> so thank you for coming today. I appreciate it. I want to remind you, I should have before we took the offering, that we are doing a Christmas gift for Jesus. And we're raising funds for City Union Mission and Love Incorporated. Again, some of you have been giving through the app. We appreciate that. But keep that in mind as we help those guys raise their budget for the coming year. And they all said, Amen. Well, we've arrived at the final message in the Biblical Women series. And they all said, Aww. It occurs to me, I thought as, you know, pastors, when we, when we hear a weather forecast like this, we go, oh, no, you know. Uh, so I thought, uh, here we are at the final climatic moment of this series, and then this snowstorm hits. But you're here, amen, and you're very important, amen. Uh, we're going to try to crank this out and, and get it out on our YouTube, YouTube channel this afternoon, hopefully. Richard Michael says he'll do his best on it. <laughs> we'll see how good he really is. <laughs> and so that those who are snowed in, and uh, then there will be people that will receive this in the form of a part of the premarital counseling package. So we've we got a lot of stuff going on here today, and so we're going to pray that the Lord will help us um, really finish on a high note. I don't know if you know this or not, but it was the first weekend in September, if my, my memory serves me correctly, that we took on the American Gender Challenge. The American Gender Challenge. Where we began to talk about gender in America. Nah, maybe not America. We began to talk about gender in the church. Remember I preached for several weeks about what a non-toxic masculinity is. Amen? Remember that? what a man is, what the Bible says a man is. And then we followed that up with equal time for the women and uh, spent a few weeks, two or three weeks, talking about how God, through Christ, has dealt with the oppression of women that was part of the culture that the New Testament was written in. And we moved into what a biblical woman looks like. And today I believe the stage is all set so we can talk to you about the fourth mark of a biblical woman, that is a biblical woman models maturity. A biblical woman, I'm almost getting tongue-tangled there. A biblical woman models maturity. You see, when you put time and experience, if they are used correctly, time and experience will create maturity. Time alone won't, experience alone won't. Put them together, they won't. But if they're done right, they will create maturity. And there will be certain markers that will identify a person as mature. And we, have, we, we, we recognize that. We look at something and we say, oh, they're so immature, right? They're so immature. And we look at other people and we see maturity and we honor that and we celebrate that and we try to, to learn from it. So, ladies, when you are spiritually mature, there are certain markers that will characterize your life. And you're blessed today that I, I'll share those biblical. Not my opinion but the opinion of the Word of God. Let's look at those markers. Titus chapter 2, verse 3. Older women, now let's change that a little bit. (laughs) How many women like to be called an older woman? It is what it is. Let's talk about a woman of maturity. I think that you can be mature and not necessarily 
80 years old, and you can be 80 years old and not necessarily be mature, you know. Well, I think we're talking about a mature woman likewise are to be, and now he starts giving the description, reverence and behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. Don't you think wine must have been a problem back in this day? Have you noticed every deacon list, every elder list, and all these lists of spiritual people, every seem like every one of them, Paul or Peter, whoever's talking, comes along and says, you can't be addicted to much wine. So there must have been a major problem. Aren't we glad that's not the issue today? Sarcastically, he said. They are to teach what is good. The mark of a mature, godly woman is that she teaches what is good. Maybe not in a pulpit, maybe not in front of a class, but she teaches what is good. And so train the younger woman, women, the less mature, to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the Word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge younger men to be self-controlled. I don't know why I put that in there. It didn't need to be there. I should have stopped one verse earlier. So first of all, it says she is reverent. She's reverent. What is she? She's reverent. Can I give you a, a couple of $10 words? You guys have got to get in this sermon, right? I don't want to do this all by myself. Let's talk about the transcendence of God and the eminence of God. What are the words? The transcendence and the eminence. The transcendence of God says he transcends everything. He's high and exalted and lifted up and he's awesome and we're nothing like him and he's incredible. The eminence of God says he's real close. He's right here. I can touch him. I can feel him. I can experience him. Jesus even told me I am his friend. That's the eminence of God. The transcendence of God is that awesomeness of God. The eminence of God is that God is right here where I can have access and contact and fellowship and relationship with Him. The problem is if we don't keep both of these in our lives, we wind up with a distorted doctrine and a distorted lifestyle. If we emphasize the eminence so much, we bring God down to our level and He's no longer a sovereign, majestic God. I've heard people talk about Daddy God and the helpful Holy Spirit. Really? Shouldn't shouldn't there be a, a a little bit more reverence in that? So the Bible says that a mature woman, a woman who has walked with God for a season, will carry around in her life the constant reality of God's transcendence. When she talks about God, there will be a reverence in her voice. When she relates to God, there will be an awe about her. As she has walked with God, not only has she understood His eminence, but she's walking in His transcendence. And she looks at him and she honors him and she praises him and she influences other people to see God as an awesome God. She is reverent in her behavior. 
She carries around that awe. Her actions display her awe and respect for God. And everybody said, go on. It says she's not a slanderer. In other words, she's not a gossip. A mature woman is not a gossip. And they all said, what they really said is, you talked about that last week. Move on. So we'll move on. Number three, she's not addicted to wine, not addicted to much wine. Some are from the teetotaler faction would say there should be none, none of this involved. But again, I'm always amazed at how sometimes God leaves us in the presence of something that has tremendous ability to do great harm. But it says that this mature woman must not have a problem with addiction to chemical, if I could just make it generalized. She cannot be under the mastery of wine. And by the way, remember, the deacons and the elders could not either. I'm going to say something real quickly, and then I'll move on, if you'll listen real good. Would you, would you like that? Peace and joy that come from a chemical are fake. The peace and joy that come from the Holy Spirit are, are genuine. And if you get in the habit, again, we're not just talking about women now. Remember, it was in all the lists we talked about when we were talking about men. If you get in the habit of creating peace and joy from a chemical, you're going to get yourself in all kinds of problems. Because you will be, just listen for a second, just entertain this idea, and then you can write me off if you want. Entertain the idea that when you replace the peace and joy that authentically comes from God with a chemical that we drink or however we get it into our system, we have, in a sense, replaced our intimacy with God for an intimacy with a chemical. And he said, you've got to really watch that. When I was 21 years old, I'm not going to tell you about a drunken story or anything. Oh, this is a somber group. Um, I, I remember I, I, I went to Little Rock uh, to visit Little Rock, Arkansas, to visit my dad, who was in the hospital uh, in a in a rehabilitation wing of the hospital for drug addiction. And I remember I went all the way up to the top floor, and I was standing at his bedside talking to him, and. Uh, a couple of things happened that day. Number one, first time in my life I heard my dad say, I love you. That was incredible. Wow. Second thing that happened, I noticed that when he was talking about the drug he was, had been addicted to and was addicted to, he personified it. I'm standing there, a 21-year-old kid listening to him, and he's talking about this drug as if it's the best friend you've ever had in your life. It gets you through all kinds of stuff. Never fails you. Always makes you feel good. Always brings you back. Oh, and I remember standing there looking and thought, man, this, this was not just a chemical. This was a close, intimate friend. That's why I think the Bible cautions us so much. I know that some people think the Bible says don't do all this stuff because God doesn't want us to have fun. 
No, God wants to protect us. God wants to protect us because when we begin to replace the true joy and peace of God with the joy and peace created by a chemical, we are going to create all kinds of problems for ourselves. So he says, a mature woman, he said, be careful about this. You'll be drawn into this idea that I can just grab a bottle of wine and fix everything that's bothering me, and you're not fixing anything. You're making them worse. You're just hiding. You're burying your head. You're not dealing with the true issue before you, the Scripture teaches. And everybody said, is this relevant at all? No, don't tell me if that's relevant. (laughs) Number four, she is serious about mentoring. The Bible says she's a teacher. What experience and time have taught us. He said she is obligated to pass it on. I've reached a point in my life, and I hope that I'm not the only one. I've reached a point in my life where one of the most fulfilling, joyful things I can do is share something that I have learned with someone who might need to know it. I've reached that point where I have learned the value of mentoring and the joy of mentoring. The reason the church of Jesus has hung around for over 2,000 years and is bigger today than it has ever been in the history of Christianity is because the church is built on mentoring. Everyone in here, and, and the Scripture specifically refers to women, but we know it can apply to everyone. Everyone in here who has any maturity who has any knowledge, should be serious about reaching back and giving that to someone that might need it. And they all said, and they cannot seriously say, I am a mature believer if there is not some mentoring going on in your life. If you're not reaching back to someone and saying, here, here's some things I have learned about my walk with the Lord. Here's some things I've learned from the Word of God. Here's some, you know, sometimes I'm, I may be sitting at lunch with, with one of the young guys talking to them, and, and I'll say, did you notice in the Scripture, and as I'm talking to them about it, I see their eyes lighting up, and they go, wow. I go, that is what really gets the juices to flowing. The idea that you are helping someone gain in their walk with the Lord. What is she to teach? Well, she's to teach the younger women how to love their husbands and their children. Think about that. There. Women with maturity. Says, come alongside the, the younger women. Talk to them about how do you love your husband? How do you love your kids? She's to teach them things like self-control. Purity, a good work ethic, kindness, submission. You may need the notes from a couple weeks ago on that one. She's supposed to teach the younger people how to keep the Word of God from being mocked and reviled. And you know, a, a lot of what I have done in this series, I feel like, is try to keep the Word of God from being mocked and reviled. I mean, I spent 
couple of weeks on that first point about submission to say the world is mocking and reviling the church of Jesus, the evangelical church, because of what they think we believe about submission. Let me tell you what we believe about what the scripture says about submission. Ladies, you are called to be a mentor. You've got any maturity at all in the Lord. You are called to be a mentor. Oh, let's move to the last point. Snow's piling up. I'd preach a lot faster if you guys acted more interested. <laughs> yeah, really. Honestly. The biblical woman can win without words. Peter says, even if some husbands do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Winning without words. Remember last week I talked about the woman and her words? And now Peter comes along, and unlike Paul, Peter is a married man. We know that he had a wife because the Bible says Jesus healed his mother-in-law. Right? We know from, uh, I think it's Corinthians chapter 9, the Apostle Paul says, we could be like Peter and take a wife. So we know that he was married. We don't know anything about his family life, but we know that he was married. And speaking as a married man, he says that wives can do a lot even without words. He foresaw that some believers, are you listening? Some believers would be in a marriage with an unbeliever. He foresaw that. Some wives, some Christian wives would be living in a home with a godless man. He anticipated that. And he said, I want you ladies to know that you love the Lord, you love Jesus, and you're living with a man who doesn't. Let me tell you something. You can win them without a word. And it's just, I'm going to get in trouble now. Why would he say without a word? Unless he understands that, ladies, you depend a whole lot on words. Hello? Why in the world would he say, ladies, let's, let's, let's back off on the words and let's win him without words? What a, what a concept. So, <laughs> I'm treading softly here, you know. A woman can be a transforming force in a lost husband's life. And I know she can be a transforming force in a, in a saved husband's life as well. But how does a woman win without words? That's what you really want to know, isn't it? I'll say that again and give you a chance to get in. How does a woman win without words? That's really what you want to know. Yes. Number one, this is my theories now. Yeah. <laughs> Consider the liability of words. Consider the liability of words. What did I say? When we become over-dependent upon words, we don't understand that there is a side effect to our over-dependence upon words. I've often said to folks that if the only thing you have in your toolbox is a hammer, you'll see every problem as a nail. There's got to be some more stuff in there. <laughs> Again, 
How we do, what do we do here? Ladies, if you fall into the trap of nagging, your words will work against you. Your words will actually work against you. And they all said, <laughs> they all timidly went, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a simple question. Would you like to know what it is? Simple question. Who influences you the most, your friends or your enemies? Who influences you the most, your friends or your enemies? It's your friends. And when we start criticizing somebody, we put ourselves in the role of an enemy, a foe. And when we do that, we lose our most powerful asset, which is our influence. Because when we begin to oppose someone verbally, they begin to take up a position of adversary to us, and anything we could have influenced them is lost. Here's the scenario I think Peter has in mind. You've got this believing wife and this unbelieving husband, and she is nagging him to come to Christ. She's nagging him to come to church. She's trying to persuade him with her words, you really need to change your life. And Peter is saying, you're probably doing more harm than good. Hello? This is good preaching, isn't it? (laughs) I'm going to have to be both the amen and the preacher. I'll run down there and yell amen real loud. What? What happened, Mark? We were going to make a, a recording of amens and shouts and hallelujah, and we were just going to play them once in a while. We've got to get on that. If you want your lost spouse to come to Jesus, be nice to them in Jesus' name. Be nice to them in Jesus' name. See, there is... An equation, I'm trying not to get tangled up in my mind. There is a, an equation here. You ready? Think this through. A godly spouse has a godless husband. And the godly spouse treats the godless husband in a godly way. And the godless spouse is drawn to the God of the godly spouse. Did I do that right? See? That's how the pieces work together. The godly influence the godless through godliness. That's evangelism 101. The godly influence the godless through godliness. Secondly, consider the power of an example. The power of an example is brought to bear by conduct. Without words, he says, we have this ability to impact people. We have this ability to touch people, this ability to impress people for Jesus. When a person understands and when a person sees godliness in our actions, in our attitude, in the way we treat them and others, I think then and only then they're really ready to listen to our message. 
this same apostle will at one point write these words, Be ready to give an answer to those who ask concerning the hope that is in you. There is this idea that as you and I are living godly lives, people are going to come up and ask us, What is going on with you? Amen. And number three, consider the impact of respect. Peter says that when a godly woman treats a godless spouse, husband, with respect, she will draw him to her God. Paul says this same thing. I believe it's in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, how do you know, O woman, that you will not sanctify your lost husband through your purity, through the way you act. And he says the same thing about men. Have you ever noticed that people tend to meet us at our level of meeting them? You ever notice we tend to establish a standard by which we treat people and they treat us the same? Now, this is a working theory. You want to hear it? <laughs> it's a working theory. Can you hear me? The theory is that the people who yell at you the most are the people you yell at the most. You've established that plane of of relationship. The people who disrespect you the most are the people that you disrespect the most. Hello? We tend to establish the standard. Let's admit it. Some of you would never talk to anybody else the way you talk to your spouse. And vice versa. I know that's always true, but I'm talking about it in a negative way now. You don't talk baby talk to other people. That'd be weird. Hopefully you have a language that you guys share. Hopefully you you don't you, you tamp that down when you're around people, you know. Awkward. You know. But I bet those who are rudest to you are the people that you're the rudest to. See, we meet. We meet at that, at that standard. I bet. I'm doing a lot of betting today, aren't I? That you are kindest to the words, to the people who are kindest to you. I bet you show the most respect to the people who show the most respect to you. We establish what kind of interaction we're going to have. It's the old law of sowing and reaping. Most of the time, when we speak respectfully, there are exceptions. I mean, there, there are idiots in the world. But most of the time, when we speak respectively to someone, we get that back. Most of the time, when we speak disrespectfully to someone, we get that back. And sometimes it's just training ourselves to use a different tone, to do a different reaction than, than the way that we've been doing things. 
rather than get all defensive and argumentative about some issue around the house, we stop and say, oh, I'm sorry, I'll take care of that right away. And I put number four in here, and I'm going to share with you a little bit about that and how we do it. I'm going to get you guys out of here early today. You'd hate that, wouldn't you? Consider the reputation of Christ's church. I'm going to I'm going to blow you away right now with with some really shocking news. You ready for it? The church is filled with imperfect people. <sighs> it is. Every one of you guys is just flawed to the hilt, you know. Every one of you guys has got all kinds of kinks and quirks and problems and all that, right? Look at me. Look at you. Every church, every church has um, decisions are made that maybe are not the best. Things happen that may not be the best. And the reason I added this in there is because it was one of the great challenges of my life. And I, I, I trust that my parents are busy in heaven somewhere and don't know what we're talking about down here. But one of the biggest challenges I had in my life, you, you've heard the story, all of you have heard me at all, you heard me say that when I was seven years old, there was a scandal in the church we attended. My dad left church with his afterburners on couldn't stand preachers and churches or anything to do with it. And for 30 years, I prayed, God saved my dad, right? You've all heard that story. One of the biggest problems I had trying to talk to my dad about Jesus is that my mom had a habit of venting about stuff in church to my dad. And it just fueled just he knew all the church problems, and my mom, again, she, I, I owe so much to my mom. But my mom had this philosophy of church. My mom's philosophy of church is: go early, go to the altar, stay at the altar, and if things get really good, you don't do anything else. You just pray, and everybody prays, and, and we cry, and we wail, and we pray some more. And we, we play a little bit of music. And if it's really a great service, wow, we didn't even have preaching. I mean, God moved, and there wasn't even a sermon. I go, I don't know if that's a good idea. But, you know, but that was kind of my mom's attitude. Of, Man, when you go to churches, let the Holy Spirit take over. We don't need to have anything. You know, you just, and, of course, that's not the way church happens. That's a prayer meeting. That's not a church service. It's a prayer meeting. My mom would get so frustrated. She'd go home talking about how the pastor quenched the spirit. Pastor quenched the spirit and preached, you know. You know, those, those kind of things. Some of you are looking real serious. I thought you'd kind of enjoy this a little bit, you know. But, and, and she kind of had this, this mentality that, you know, and so consequently... God bless her. She had real trouble getting along with pastors. And, uh, you know, I'd all the time back them up. But, you know, she felt like that they should they should blow in, blow up, and blow out, you know. 
But when I'd sit down and talk to my dad, I'd have to try and get through that. All of her frustration would be between me and him. And I'm trying to work. And I remember saying to her one time, Mom, you've got to stop venting to Dad. If you ever want us to lead him to Christ, you've got to protect the reputation of the church. Surely there's somebody else you can vent to. You know, there's, there's got to be some other way. And the reason I'm saying this, and I really felt compelled to do this, and I feel a little bit bad, you know, Mom's in heaven, she's okay with this, but um, if you fall into a trap of venting about the church to lost people, you're driving them further away from the church. Protect the church's reputation. We already admit it. We're flawed. We don't get it right. You know? We don't always get it right. We don't always accomplish what we want to. We're not always there for you when you needed us. I mean, every once in a while I'm talking to someone and they say, I just got out of the hospital. And I say, sorry, I, I didn't come see you and pray for you. I didn't know you were in the hospital. You know, we, we drop the ball sometimes. And you guys are so gracious with that. I don't get in trouble for that too much. But if you go out into a lost world, complaining about what's wrong with the church. You're driving them away from the church that has the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? So protect the reputation of the church. Protect the body of Christ. Let's review real quickly. What does a biblical woman look like? She embraces the biblical order. She understands what submission to her husband is supposed to look like. She adorns herself from the outs or the inside out, more concerned about the dressing on the inside than what's on the outside. She understands the power of her words, and she does not let the enemy use those many more words to do harm. She models maturity. She's a mentor. And she can win without saying a word. Her life speaks the gospel truth of Jesus Christ. You know what I don't like? Ambiguity. Ambiguity. Our political system is full of ambiguity. Who, what, 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 what happened? When did it happen? Where did it happen? I don't like ambiguity. What I like about the Word and what I really like about this series that we end today, I think if you've given half a chance, we've removed the ambiguity. We said, this is, this is what a man looks like. This is what a woman looks like. Here's how they function in their spiritual walk, right? So you don't have to walk out of here going, wow, I wonder what God expects of me as a man. I wonder what God expects out of me as a woman. You, you have the notes in front of you. You've had the teaching. You, you've got an opportunity to say, here is what I am supposed to be in my God-created, listen, God-ordained gender. God wonderfully made me. He made me to be this man or this woman. Amen? He made me this way. Stand with me, please.
I'm going to pretend that one of you just asked me a very important question. Maybe the most important question, ladies, you could ask me today if we were having a Q&A session was of all the things you've talked about, what worries you the most? Can we pretend you just asked me that? What is it that worries you the most? What's, what concerns you the most? Ready for the answer? What worries me the most is that the American church has become so individualistic. It's what's going on in my life, my life, my plan, my, that it feels like, and man, I hope I'm wrong, but it feels like one of the foundational principles of our faith is fading away, and that's mentoring. Ladies, every one of you who have any maturity in Christ are called to mentor another lady or other ladies. And when our faith becomes me surviving my trials and accomplishing my mission and all this, and there is no concern for the office of mentor, the church is on its last leg when that happens. And I'm not talking about relevant. I'm talking about all of Christianity. It has continued for 2,000 years because whenever Christians became mature, they reached back and lifted other people up. So right now, unless you are a baby Christian, just cutting your teeth, you should be in some relationships with people that you are mentoring for Christ's be sharing your knowledge of Scripture and your knowledge of life in the Spirit. You can't let that fade in pursuit of your own issues. Amen? That's what worries me most of everything. I'd love to see a rebirth, a revitalization of the ministry of mentoring going on in the body of Christ. So I want to challenge, today's about ladies, but let's, let's just do it every which way. I want to challenge every mature believer to reaffirm today, I'm going to be a mentor. I'm going to help people come along and learn what I have learned. Amen? And Father, in the name of Jesus, I'm asking you to raise us up. To raise us up in maturity. Help us not to make it about ourselves. Not to just worry about us getting over the next hump. But help us walk it out. Making time for connections that mentor others. Remove our tunnel vision. Bring us into a place where people are getting closer to you through us. People are gaining knowledge and wisdom through us. Lord, I ask if there is anyone today who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, I'm asking you, Father, that you would give them the faith right now to believe you died for their sins, to accept that sacrifice, to believe in the heart and confess with their mouth. 
Jesus is Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. You guys okay? Be real careful out there. Next week, I'll do a Christmas sermon. I promise. (laughs) Amen. God bless you. Be careful.